0: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. Today's episode is dedicated in memory of Moshe Bina, the son of Rebunit Malkabina and Rabbi Aaron Bina, who passed away this past Hoshana Rabbah. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, Please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. A few upcoming events at Matan. There's a new series beginning uh, on Sefer Yoshua with Dr. Yael Ziegler that will be happening on Mondays at 8 p.m. Israel time and 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And another new series will be taught by Rabbanit Surla Rosen on Moshe Rabbeinu. Uh, there will be six classes beginning on February 14th uh, at 10.50 a.m. These can be accessed uh, through the internet, also in live. Uh, and so I encourage you to look at the Matan website to see more of the events going on. And lastly, the second semester has just begun at Matan, and it's not too late to register. Please visit our website, matan.org.il, for more information and registration. Now back to the podcast. Each week, we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Matan faculty member, Tanya White, to speak about Parshat Kittisa. Tanya, it's great to be sitting here with you again.
1: It's brilliant to be back, Yossifor, with you.
0: Okay, so let's take us in. This is obviously one of the most seminal parshiot, in uh, certainly, in say for Shmot, uh, I would say the biggest event since we we managed to get out of Egypt. Uh, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about the about the parsha.
1: So I've always found the event of the Egel fascinating. Um, it kind of beckons us to think about, or to question how could it be that this people who have just witnessed miracles in front of their eyes, the splitting of the sea and the makot and all the various things that we we read about, could have all of a sudden built a seemingly uh, idol or an idol that looks like an idol um, after having witnessed everything they saw. And it really made me think a lot about why that would be, what kind of mindset those people would have been in to have done that. And maybe even to question the very basis of what exactly they were doing when they built the Egel. What did the Egel represent? A few years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to the workings of the German Jewish psychologist, social psychologist and psychoanalyst, Erich Fromm. Um, Actually, the original book I read was called Religion and Psychoanalysis, which was absolutely phenomenal. Um, And then I started looking a bit more at his works. And I read a book. That totally shifted the way I understood not just the episode of the Egel of the golden calf, but generally the whole narrative of the people coming out of Egypt and the whole narrative of Moshe at the burning bush. Um, and it in some ways, actually, I have to say that the book itself transformed the way I looked and my own reality. It's very rare that a book kind of sits with you for so long after you read it, and that was one of those books. Um, and the book is called To Have and To Be. Um, it's a book about the way in which we approach reality, the way in which we approach our our lives, um, and. What I would love to do yourself is to actually outline the idea in the book first, before we, before I apply it or show you how he applies it actually to um, the episode of the golden calf. Now I know that. Perhaps it's not um, the classic, it's not a classic commentator on the Torah. Um, one wouldn't necessarily look to Erich Fromm to kind of elicit some kind of meaning from, from you know, from the Torah text. But I have to say that for me, it has been immensely formative um, in reading, again, not just this narrative of the Ergel and Kitissa, but. Many other narratives in the text.
0: You know, Tanya, after you outline the ideas, I would love to circle back to that question later of why, why do you think, and here I'll give you time to think about it, why, uh, why do you think that it was so transformative for you? What, what was it about this idea particularly?
1: Okay, so, I mean, I think as we talk, um, I'll, you know, it, you'll, it'll be illustrated through what I'm saying, okay. um, but I'll definitely circle back to it afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a small, a little bit of background on Erich Fromm. He lived from 1900 to 1980. Um, he originally was from Germany, from Frankfurt, and he um, managed to escape um, to... America where he resided afterwards. He he lived the rest of his life. His PhD, his doctorate actually was on Jewish law, interestingly enough. That is surprising. Um, Yeah, really surprising. Um, Well, not so surprising actually when you read his books, funnily enough, Um, but he obviously his training and his um, profession was as a psychoanalyst. And he wrote a lot. He wrote many books. Um, I'll, at the end, I'll perhaps recommend you three of which I personally um, really, really uh, uh, kind of identify with. But um, I really recommend people reading. They're not long. All of them are quite short, actually, and they are very, very edifying, um, I think. Anyway, um, so let me talk about To Have and To Be. So he speaks about the idea that we approach the world in two different ways. One is through the mode of having, and one is through the mode of being. And he actually begins by, and I'd like to just share this for a minute. He begins by reading or by presenting two different poems. And he explains that each of these poems are about flowers or about nature um, And they explain or they illustrate these two different modes of existing in the world, the modes of existing in a having way and the mode of existing in a being way. So the first one, and they're very short, so literally just very quickly read them. The first one goes like this. A uh, flower in a crannied wall, I pluck you out of the crannies. I hold you here, root and all in my hand. Little flower, but if I could understand what you are, root and all and all in all, I should know what God and man is. Okay. So, and he explains that this, in this poem, essentially what you're doing is you're looking at the flower or whatever it is, right? Um, something from nature and you want to possess it. You want to pick it. You want to have it. You want to hold it. But by doing that, what you're actually doing is you're taking the life out of it. Okay, you're, pos- you're trying to possess it. You're trying to hold it. You're trying to encapsulate it. You're trying to identify it. You're trying to define it. You're putting it into a box. Then the second one, which is far shorter, goes like this. When I look carefully, I see the Nazuna blooming. It's a type of flower by the hedge. That's it. <laughs>
0: Um, this could be an ad for the uh for the exactly tevah, right? the, 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 Exactly. We <laughs> keep keep the flowers out in the in, in the fields don't, 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 don't pluck pick the them flowers. Don't pick
1: exactly them. exactly but i think it's so beautiful what he's saying here because what he essentially he he obviously he unpacks it and he explains it but he says that we as human beings our impulse is to pluck the flower By the way, nowadays, our impulse is to video something or to take a picture of it. That's another way of possessing, right? Um, Our impulse is to do that because when we do that, we've integrated that into ourselves in some way or another, okay? And he says, but actually in the modes of being, that's the authentic mode. The authentic mode is to look at it, is to contemplate it, is to be with it, but not to have to possess it. Okay. Now, he speaks about this, obviously, and he applies it in many different forms and in many different ways to many different um, kind of realities or approaches to the way in which we see the world. Um, but ultimately, what he says is that the having mode, which has become prevalent today, right, and very characteristic of today's society, is where I'm convinced, and he speaks about this idea of where I'm convinced that my happiness is going to come from the mode of having, right? Self-fulfillment and, and acquiring, self-fulfillment is going to come from acquiring things. Um, and by the way, when I acquire something, it doesn't have to be something tangible and physical. Okay, it, he talks about acquiring um, knowledge through the having mode as opposed to the being mode, or love or comprehension of the world. All of these things, he speaks about the two different modes. Um, the problem with the having mode or the possessing mode is that ultimately it leads to an inauthentic existence, which is hedonistic or full of greed or envy, all the negative things that society um, reaps. And the other mode is the being mode, where I am absolutely free. I seek things um, for the curiosity of those things themselves, meaning even knowledge, Um, love, for example. Okay. Love is where I meet the other unconditionally. It reminds me very much of Booba. In fact, if we had time, which we don't, I would do a whole comparison with Booba's I, thou, I, it, because I think there's a huge comparison there, right? But it's When I'm in a being mode, I don't need to possess the other. I don't need to integrate the other. In fact, I allow the other to be, and I am, and we both are in our senses of being together without having to incorporate the other into my experience.
0: Okay, now this sounds not so dissimilar from a lot of Buddhist thought. Uh, I don't know if he was in dialogue with it or just and I'm, I'm not a Buddhist scholar by any means, but yeah, this notion of being in, in the moment or observing reality around you, I mean, those are serious catchphrases in Buddhist theology. So I'm just curious, is there any known relationship there? Um, I mean, I believe there's also people can come to certain truths from all different angles. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, but it just sort of springs up to mind as you're speaking.
1: So there's no question that I, I also notice a parallel between. And and, it's, and again, he was writing, he wrote this book, actually, I can't remember exactly what year it was. I'm just looking now and think. He wrote, it, this was originally published in 1976. Right,
0: which was also okay. a heyday yeah. of Buddhist, uh, you know, Eastern practices being integrated into America.
1: For sure. And I think for sure he was probably influenced by it. But he, his... Um, argument comes from much more. I mean, he argues anyway that it comes from what he's witnessed in his clinic, in his therapy, um, and from how he believes um, one can le- can go through some kind of cathartic. Um, I don't know redemption's the right word, but process, cathartic process, therapeutic process. Um, and he, what he says he witnesses is that people that are in the having mode hold on to pain and to other things much more than people who are in the being mode. So I, th- I think that's also a really interesting observation. I'm sure he was probably influenced. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot. Yeah,
0: of- that's pretty classic also. That that sentence yeah. also is something that really comes very up very strongly. Uh, obviously, yeah, you you don't allow yourself to be emotionally engaged in things when you're just observing them from afar. But then there are things where we can't help but not be, you know, a sort of omniscient observer. Right.
1: So he doesn't totally um, negate the having experience. On the contrary, he says part of being a human being is to define, you know, we have to define things and we have to categorize and we have to, um, you know, in order to learn, that's how we learn. Um, and actually talking about learning, it's one of my most I hope you'll 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 allow me to share one more thing that he says because it's my favourite part of the book where he differentiates between the having and the being mode when it comes to learning, and he says that in the having mode the student comes to the lecture already with. A priori knowledge, meaning already with things that he wants to get out from the lecture, things that he wants to know, and that student will write and they'll keep their notes and their notes are going to represent exactly what they learn. But there's no integration. He says students in the having mode have but one aim to hold on to what they learned, either by entrusting it firmly to their memories or by carefully guarding their notes. They don't have to reproduce or create something new," he said. Right, and he continues, but then he says that students in the being mode—and I'm trying to find where he says it exactly. Um, I can't find it here right now. But he says students in the being mode want to—they—they they come to the topic and they are processing it. They allow the knowledge to stand in and of itself. They allow themselves to be to be changed. By what they hear, right? And it's not just in order to possess the knowledge, but for the knowledge to possess them or to affect their being. So I think that was also beautiful. I love the way he he speaks about learning because it's not your it's not your classic way of thinking about having and being, but he applies it so beautifully.
0: You know, recently I also was reading something that's related, where you know, one the writer was speaking about how university used to be a place that you went to to form your character. Um, but that, you know, nowadays it's sort of just like a supermarket for different ideas. And that I think it really is echoing exactly what he's saying. But if, if you're going there to form your character, you're going there to hear things and to be changed by them. You're opening up a book because you want to come out differently at the end of the book. You're going to a class because you're open to what it might do to change your ideas, your values and, and how you operate in the world. So I think that that's a really powerful idea.
1: Yeah, so you might have read it. I read it in The Coddling of the American Mind um, by Jonathan I read it Hyde. somewhere
0: else, but he, but he was quoting him as well. So they're all related ideas. Yeah,
1: so and there he talks about the idea of cancel culture and what we're losing in the universities by cancel culture and not being exposed to something that might challenge our pre-existing conceptions. Um, and yeah, I mean, I totally that's totally aligned with what um, Eric Fromm saying here.
0: Okay, so let's take the having and being to the Parsha.
1: So yeah, so what does he say about the Parsha? And and he actually speaks specifically about the golden calf, which I found really, really fascinating. He talks about the process of the people of Israel, Israel coming out of Egypt. But let me just think for a second. I want us, before I even get to his explanation of the golden calf, I want us just to think about what actually happens in our Parsha. So we have the creation of the golden calf. Um, and obviously, how is that created? It's created by the people giving their jewelry to Aaron. Then we have God telling us, what happened? We have Moshe coming down the mountain and taking this very tangible, very iconically represented notion of the law and of our relationship with God, the Luchot, and smashing it. Okay, there's a smashing of the possession of the law or the possession of the relationship, that representation of it being smashed. We then have God calling, and this is super important, which I'm going to talk about calling them a stiff necked people. Um, telling them they're not going to go into the land, the people having to drink the ashes of the Egel, which is also going to be super important for our commentary here. And then finally, if you look in Perik Lamed, um, chapter thir- Perik Lamed Gimel, sorry, chapter 33, you'll notice that there's a very strange corollary after the the every, all of these events. And that is that the people keep putting on and taking off jewellery. Okay, um, for example, in pasuk zalav Yishma, Amet and they were very they 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 mourned because they weren't going to go into Eretz Yisrael. ish and each man did not put on their ornaments, their jewelry, right? And then again, afterwards, God not only did did they not put them on, but Hashem turns around and says to them, says to the people at I, I, the second I can't find the actual pasok but he turns around to people and he says that they shouldn't adorn themselves with jewelry and then it says and again the people took the jewelry off now again why this obsession as a corollary to the whole story with the taking on and the taking off of jewelry which is also something that's really um important and very very often juxtaposed to this notion or this between this expression of being an amkasha or if a stiff-necked people. Okay, so those are the four things that I want to kind of focus in on the parsha. And I want to try and understand how this paradigm that we've set up of the having and the being from Ewa from can in some ways help us to unpack or to understand this episode in a slightly different way to the one that we may have until now understood. Let's just think for a second about the people. And this is what Erich himself really speaks about. So I want to explain to you what he says. And then I want to add on a bit more of how I have expanded this idea slightly. So he speaks about this idea that the people of Israel lived in a society whose quintessential value was the notion of having The whole of the Egyptian mindset, the culture was this idea of having so much so that they were even buried with their possessions. Sometimes they were even buried with their family alive. Okay. They, The very the highest level of the pyramids, right, both in a metaphorical and a a, and a literal sense, was the the of of having of being the wealthiest, the person with the most possessions, okay, and the people of Israel when they move from being in that society, the inside the Egyptian society, to becoming Israelites. Israelite and wanderers in the desert is exactly that movement from a society of having to a society of being or from an existence of having to an existence of being. And when they move to freedom, in a sense, they have to not just become free in the classic form that we understand it, but they actually have to repossess themselves. They have to learn a new language in which to communicate with themselves, with others, with God. They have to be taught that possession and ownership is not what defines relationships now again if we we don't have time now but if we look at the episode of Moshe by the burning bush it's the same idea Moshe all the time wants to define God if you look back and he says he says to God what's your name and how am I going to how am I going to call you and how am I going to define you and what's Hashem's response eye, asher, eye. I will be what I will be Hashem is moving, pushing. Moshe, to make a paradigm shift from a mindset of having to a mindset of being. If I can add one
0: note there, Tanya, which is also the taking off the shoes, which if you look at it just in the biblical context, is what is classically done when someone is in a holy place. Uh, Shoes are thought, you know, but it also, wearing shoes separates you from fully inhabiting the space that you're in. There's a lot of really fascinating Hasidic ideas surrounding this, but and it's also not, you know, not a coincidental that people when you're practicing yoga, if I can go back to the mm, Buddhist thing, yeah. right, you're, you're constantly you're not wearing shoes because shoes separate you from being fully present in the moment. They wow. always talk about being rooted. So Moshe having to take off his shoes, which, again, totally on one level is about connecting to uh, a holy place. But it's because when you're wearing shoes, you have a barrier between you and that space.
1: Wow, that's so beautiful, Yosef. I love that. <laughs> But let me go back to our Parsha Tzikita. Yes. So here, Aaron, um, Aaron remember, Moshe has, Mosh has understood that paradigm shift from the burning bush. He's made that paradigm shift. He's left the having society. He's been in the desert, etc. But the people of Israel haven't. And, Mo, and Aaron himself hasn't. And when the people come to Aaron, they say, we've lost our leader. We want to create a new leader. The only representation of reality that they know is one of having. Aaron also, by the way, and therefore, when they say to Aaron, we're going to bring you our jewelry and you're going to build something for us from that, that's a more van may love. That's an obvious thing for them. It's not... And many of the commentators, obviously, Eric is not the first to say this, in terms of the fact that the the egel didn't represent them idol worshipping. The egel represented them trying to to um, fill in the void that had been left when Moshe went up the mountain. The void that had been left when God wasn't uh, um, creating miracles in front of their eyes. They were trying to fill that void in the only way that they knew how, and that was through the modes of having. The second thing that I think is, and I, by by the way, I'll just read for you very, very briefly what Eric from himself says. Okay. It's so beautiful. The history of the Exodus moves to a tragic end. The Hebrews cannot bear to live without Having. Although they can live without a fixed abode and without food, except that sent by God every day, they cannot live without a visible present leader. Thus when Moses disappears on the mountain, the desperate Hebrews get Aaron to make them a visible manifestation of something they can worship. The golden calf so that is what it is it's the having because that is the only mode of existence that they understand and therefore it's no surprise that when Moshe comes down the mountain instead of bringing the Luchot down to them Luchot being representative or manifestation of the covenant between the people of Israel and God he smashes And by the way, it's not a smashing. It's not an impulsive smashing. Moshe knew exactly what was happening. He saw it already from on high. The smashing of the Luchot was purposeful. He came down and he purposely smashes it because it represents the smashing. In Erich Freund's language, it represents the movement from a relationship of having to a relationship of being. Now, it's no surprise, Yosefa, obviously. uh, um, What does it remind you of that they have to drink? the ashes of the Egel. Who else had to drink ashes? The Sota. The Sotah. Right. Right,
0: Chazal pick up on that.
1: Chazal pick up on that, every, everyone. And the Midrash picks up on that, obviously. Okay, the Midrash, in a very powerful way, picks up on that idea. But why do they have to drink it? So again, it goes back, and by the way, Eric Fron speaks about this, the idea of, cons- of consumerism. Consumerism is a society whose highest, the pinnacle of society okay is the having mode that's what consumerism is when I want to consume everything I see okay it's it doesn't mean I want to literally eat it but that's what it is in a sense when we are told that they have to consume the calf it reminds us of the sutta. what's the sutta? the woman who has harloted herself and what's the the book in in Tanakh where we see uh, uh this represented in the best way possible hoshea okay remember god calls on hoshea and says you want to know what it feels like to be cheated on like the people have cheated on me go and marry a harlot go marry a prostitute and then you'll see what it feels like and the most beautiful beautiful idea that comes out from that is the idea where hashem turns around um to um the people of israel basically through hoshea and says. Um, call me your husband don't call me your owner right that's what he needs to teach the people that uh, the isha sota reminds us that of of a situation where a husband and wife exist in a relationship of having rather than being.
0: Of an ownership rather than a partnership. Of ownership,
1: exactly rather than Beautiful. a partnership.
0: In a partnership you can be.
1: Beautiful, exactly.
0: Um but where one owns the other in that kind of agreement, you don't have space for that kind of relationship.
1: Exactly. And it goes back to Uber, right? You're looking at the other as an object rather than a subject, as an it, as a means to an end rather than a then I have a
0: question, Tanya. How how do we see that as a story continues? Meaning ultimately Moshe comes down with another set of luchot. So where what does From see in the continuation of the narrative? that proves that they're now being.
1: So it's so it's very interesting. From himself, to, he actually goes through, it's so beautiful, he goes through the whole of the Jewish history and he goes through that the generation of the slaves, they had to still, they existed in that mode of having that it took till the next generation when went into Eretz Israel. And by the way, he even speaks about Eretz Yisrael. The Eretz Yisrael is also this idea of possessing the land. But if we, if we don't remember that we are not the ultimate possessors, that God is the ultimate possessor, and we don't live in in a mode of being in the land, then we're thrown out the land. And he speaks about the destruction of the temple and he speaks about the rabbinic age. He even speaks about the New Testament. He goes through the whole thing and he basically shows how we meant to be balancing these two notions of having and being. Um, and that the, Jew, and Dufka, that the Bible, that the Old Testament, he calls it, is really a lesson in the ability to exist in a mode of being um, and not just in a mode of having meaning a mode of having is still important right but to be able to surpass that and to be able to at some point lead a more authentic life as he calls it which would be in the mode of being I just if, I just want to add one more thing to the idea of the drinking of the ashes because I think it's really really important um, is that in a way what the message um, that Moshe or Hashem really is giving to the people by consuming is that. That, that they shouldn't be consumed, right? That they shouldn't be, um, that which consumed them, meaning the building of the golden calf and the whole having mindset, they have to consume that. They have to integrate that into, it's got to be something within, not just something outside. When I possess something, I'm possessing it externally, but it's also got to be something Like They have to internalize the message of the golden calf. I think that's really kind of the important idea. So the corollary of the story that I mentioned about them taking the jewelry off and putting the jewelry off and God on and God telling them to take the jewelry off is obviously a corollary to that idea of having and being that there's a time and a place for ornamentation. And this was not the time. The time for them was to take off all of those things that remind them of the having mode. And the final idea being called the stiff-necked people and what that represents, I find it very bizarre that expression. I'm kasha and I actually think I was thinking more and more about this. Um, again, Erefram doesn't mention it, but I just—it seems obvious that it goes with the rest of the idea that he brings. That. Unkshaw means someone that can't move their neck. They can't see beyond. They can't paradigm shift. They're not able to shift from the having mode to the being mode, which is clear that people can't. It takes a second generation. But as I was thinking about it yesterday, I was thinking even more about ancient Egypt. And if you look at all the pictures, one of the things that they wear, one of the mm, idea, nice. one of the, um, the represent the highest level of kind of kingship there is to wear what's called a nemes. I think that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Which is basically a ornamentation that you wear around your neck. And by the way, I read up on it. It begins all the way up. You almost can't move your neck at all. Okay. It can't begins at the top of the neck, comes all the way down to your chest and it's ornamented. It's beautiful. It's ornate and it's gorgeous. And the highest level in society the higher you were in society the more ornate your nemes was and it had lapels also that hung by the ears so you literally couldn't move in it and I was thinking maybe that also could perhaps um, be this idea of a stiff-necked people when you're so ornamented when you're so obsessed and you're so integrated in the having society you can't move your neck because you have that on you only when you rid yourself like you said of the shoes and all of those things that bind us to this notion of having when we rid all of those things only then can we truly be in the mode of being can we truly exist in the mode of being and only in that mode can we really have an authentic covenantal relationship with Hashem
0: you know I think this idea also takes me to and you, you hinted to it before, but all of the mitzvot in which we are supposed to show very literally that we are not in charge and that we do not own anything. Uh, take it, you know, for all the mitzvot surrounding money, right? And shmita and all the, what we call mitzvot rishit, where you have to give the firsts of, right? Your produce, your, your cattle and all of the, your chala and all of those mitzvot are there. And I I love that I think that this idea by the way that you're expressing, I think it comes through actually in many Mitrashim, but I love that his language gives it a totally different uh a totally different side and also I think in a way that is is very relatable to our world. And you've already translated his language into consumerism. So I love how language can shift over time and that, you know, the yeah. kernel which can be expressed by chazal is then brought out in a totally different way. By a modern thinker, but you have, you know, many, we know that, that Chazal under, and the Torah itself, I think even without Chazal, was expressed in this basic idea that if you don't, if you think you're in charge, you're not going to be able to have a genuine relationship with he who actually is in charge. And so, you know, Eric From is speaking about it in the sense of you have to be and be observing and I would say even thankful for what you have uh, so that you can then have a genuine relationship with your um with god and i would even say by the way on a level of of a relationship with a spouse or with a loved one is that when we think that we that they're in our possession things get really really messy uh, mm-hmm. meaning when we think that we are we are in control of our children or quote unquote they're in our possession or when we think that way about our spouse also, relationships go totally they they skid totally off course. And it's it's only when people are able to be present in a relationship in, in therapy world they call it having a solid flexible self. It's a nod to David Snarch, shalom. But when a person has to have their solid, flexible self that they they are in their own space and they're able to observe the other, but once they take ownership, or they think that they each are fused with each other, that's when when people start behaving in ways that are inappropriate because they misunderstand the nature of their relationship. So it also sort of throws me into that into that space as well. But I think that that kernel exists in Chazal, really. But I love the language that you're giving that you're giving through uh, through Eric from, and it of course takes us to the space of general consumerism that we see has overtaken society.
1: By the way, just so um, I, people are aware, the mitzvot that come immediately after in, this, in the parasha and the parasha after talk, talk exactly about what you're saying. You have to destroy any idol artifacts from idol worship. Um, you can't create any molten images. Redemption of the firstborn, um, the Bikurim. Okay, all of those come immediately after this. And by the way, Shabbat is on either side. We didn't even speak about Shabbat, but Shabbat yeah. is the ultimate mode of being. All of these things that surround all of the laws and all of the commands that surround the Egel are all to do exactly as you said, yourself, It were all to do with this idea of renouncing ownership. I think that's really like kind of how I would define it. Renouncing ownership, which, as you said, creates a sense of humility. It creates a sense of saying, being present with the other person without feeling the need to own them. And I say even more than that, it's as you you mentioned, it creates a very deep sense of gratitude. Yeah. And I think that's really what... You know, people say, why was the Bible so radical? Was it monotheism? But I think it was even more than monotheism that was so radical about the Bible. It was a totally different way of relating, not just to God, but actually to man, actually to the other and to the self. And I think Eric Fromm taps into that really beautifully um, through the prism of the having and the being.
0: Tanya, this was a really wonderful, um, I would even say soundbite uh, into his his <laughs> theology, um, I guess I want to end the conversation with you just telling us really in bullet points the three books that you would recommend, uh, to read of his. And I'll put them in the show notes, of course.
1: Yeah. Um, so firstly, um, to have and to be, obviously I would totally recommend, um, the art of, I'd say four, the art of being. It's very similar. <laughs> there's always, to, always to
0: more, Janya.
1: <laughs> yeah. With me, there's always more. <laughs> the so.
0: art of, the
1: art of being. Yeah. And The Art of Loving. Yeah, that's the, one, that's the one that people so hear about beautiful, more. The Art of Loving is beautiful. And I tell you, the book that took me to him is called um, Religion and Psychoanalysis. And I I personally, it's one of my favorite, my personal favorite. It may not speak to everyone, but it's also, and they're all very thin books. They're very, very reader-friendly. Highly recommend.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Tanya.
1: Thank you, Yosefa.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by MATAN Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il that's podcast at matan.org.il thanks for listening everyone